Hello, welcome back to Just for Farmers. Uh, Paul's left me now. I'm I'm with Bill Young. Um, I'm quite pleased about it, really. Why? Because I've been looking forward to this interview since I stalked him a little bit on LinkedIn. He's got he's got a CV that is very very diverse and eclectic. I mean, listen listen to this. Uh, I'll let him tell him he's tell you his story, but thirty years plus experience of the agricultural industry. He's worked with, I mean, listen to this for diversity. He's worked in alternative crops. He's led large teams of farm inspectors, CEO of the Ad Adlington Fund, helping young people into the industry to help save the industry and helping farms who are struggling and a bit on down on their uppers at the time. He's responsible for organisational change, sales, team management, leadership development in the industry. I'm really keen to get inside this guy's head today. Um Bill, no pressure, uh, but wow, what what a welcome! Welcome to Just for Farmers. Tell us a little bit about your your background. Well, funny enough, I grew up not far from you, David, in Staffordshire. Yeah. Um, my dad was actually a consultant psychiatrist and a vicar, so uh, a very diverse <laughs> background as well. And I don't think many can claim that as having that as their father. But from the age of about thirteen, I loved being outside, and there was a dairy farm down the road from me. Um, and I knocked on the door one day and said, have you got any jobs going? And uh, and for, the, for seven or eight years, I worked on that farm at weekends, milking cows, uh, hay. And uh, we used to have our own milk ground, green top milk, and used to deliver that round Stafford as well. It was all part of the process. Wow. Um, and I can remember the day I milked my last cow, the 4th of September 1980. And I thought, I'm never going to milk another cow. And I haven't. <laughs> uh, and but. Funny enough, it gave me a love of farming. And from I think from the age of 16, I decided I wanted to be a grain trader. Not sure why. Uh, and uh, I did my year out of the farm near Penkridge and uh, then went to Harper Adams because I wanted to do agricultural marketing and business administration, which is the only course I could find, which was sort of uh, relevant to what I wanted to do. And yeah. I became a grain buyer with a company called Old Acres, which was a brilliant company to do an apprenticeship with, a really good pastoral care uh worked for them for three years and they sold out to unigate and i can remember the unigate directors driving around the yard looking at what they bought they weren't interested in the people and by then i'd sussed out that to look after my customers i really needed to trade the grain i bought myself and match the match it to the right end user uh and they walked straight past all the staff didn't speak to any of the staff and I picked and I picked up the phone and rang up the competition. I said, have you got any jobs going? And by the end of that week, I was employed by Hinton's, which was a local agricultural merchant as a pea and bean trader and grain buyer as well. And I worked wow. for them for three years until, ironically, they got taken over by Dalgetty. And um, and again, I walked because they were a big organisation, didn't want to be part of a big organisation. I went into the cooperative sector, which was like stepping off a log, really, uh, Midland Shire's farmers were a really, truly great company um, and they were a sleeping giant. And it was so easy to ignite them with a bit of vigour and get up and go. And within a year, I found myself as sales manager. And um, we had eight fantastic years. And in the 90s, when we were really roaring ahead, we were producing 300,000 tonne of compound feed, selling 120,000 tonne of fertiliser, 15,000 tonne of seed corn. Wow. And we had such a good will from the customers we bought all our grain in 
brought in a two-year traceability policy, which was a way ahead of its time. And, and, and it was, we'd done it totally for commercial reasons, not food safety reasons. And uh, and by doing it inadvertently, we'd set a pace, really. And we had all the big boys, BOC and Bibbies and those type of boys on the back foot. And uh, they were exciting years. Um, but Midland Shires merged disastrously, in my opinion, with a company called West Midland Farmers to form countrywide. And by sheer chance um, they were setting up the equality assurance schemes and fabul had already been set up farm assure british beef and lamb and they wanted to do one on the arable side called assure combinable crops and i was sort of approached to see if i'd front up the scheme so in right. 1997 i left midland shires farmers to be the first arable employee in farm assurance really for a company called ukfqc which became cmi which became nsf <clears throat> And I was there for 18 good years, starting off with no customers. By the time I walked out the door in 2015, we'd got 35,000 and I'd overseen a million audits on farm for Red Tractor mostly. So that was an interesting wow. learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, then, okay. and then I went to the competition for two years, which is SAI Global. And again, we saw a rapid growth there in just two and a half years where we doubled the turnover. So very exciting times, but working corporately, has its own pressures and you realize you're making a lot of money for people who aren't actually within the industry and actually you don't know i was ended up working for venture capitalists out in the out in asia and i thought this is no good which is when i decided it's time to put back into the industry and i went to the addington fund as chief executive so uh, and that was for, a, for those who don't know what what's the addington funds for those who don't well, know the, the Addington Fund was set up in Suffolk in the late 90s by a, a vicar called the Reverend Richard Addington. And he helped do work with swine fever in Suffolk when the pig industry was really on its knees and did a really good job uh, just helping out local farmers get through a really bad patch. And the pig farmers have that every sort of five years. They're well averse to it and it doesn't take much to put them on their haunches. Um, they were just about to wrap it up and then foot and mouth broke out in 2001. And, uh, and all hell broke loose and Richard decided to try and help farmers doing that. But of course it was too big a job and he got moved across and we went in with the Arthur Rank Centre at Stoneley in Warwickshire. Uh, it was the Addington and became the Addington ARC Addington Fund. And that was the start of it being set up as a formal charity in 2001, eventually going off on its own. Uh, and, um, and it all started off with that foot and mouth relief uh, since then, they've given out £12 million in aid to farmers, which is a remarkable achievement. Wow, but yeah. in so doing, going around doing the relief work during the foot and mouth period, during the two foot and mouth outbreaks, actually, they realised that um, there are a load of tenant farmers who are actually trapped on their farms because they had made no provision for their retirement. The compensation from foot and mouth actually allowed them to get off the farms that they wanted to, but still wasn't enough to buy houses. So they thought, why don't we help farmers buy houses in their vicinity uh, so they can retire with their heads held, out, held high with dignity and, and appear you know, as it remaining as pillars of the local community? And when I left Addington last month, uh, we had 64 houses. So that was pretty good, all owned by Addington funds, mostly for retirement homes. But we did have a sprinkling of affordable homes to help keep youngsters in the countryside and keep them involved in agriculture as well. How um, wonderful. And on top of that, we did uh, we helped farm workers. We had the George Stevens Trust Fund, which we, we, we gave out grants to farm workers who were on the breadline. Uh, and that's, that's actually this year has been incredibly busy. And then the late Peter Jimman, who was my last chairman, um, we were also very keen to help 
do something for youngsters. So we started a, a, a young entrance scheme and went out to look for legacy farms. And we've got about 10 legacy farms coming to the Addington Fund, which are going to use for first generation young farmers to give them the first leg up in the farming ladder. And the reason I use the word farming ladder is that was the book that got me into agriculture. And I'd recommend it. It's a great read written by a guy called George Henderson, which I read when I was 12 living in Stafford. And it's it's a it's a book about how he how he got into farming between the First and Second World War and became the largest farmer in Oxfordshire. And uh, and, I've, and it's true, sustainable, diverse farming. I think he had 12 different enterprises on the farm. And it was proper, you know, and what goes around comes itself and how we've gone to regenerative farming. He was a true pioneer in that field. And I read it again the other day just to uh, just to to realise how good a book it was. And and the best farmers now are farming regeneratively. They're looking after their soils better. Worm counts, organic matters. And that's what George Henderson was doing in the 30s. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? Wow. What a. What what a story! That's wonderful. <laughs> um, now I've got I've got a few questions for you. Yeah. Um, feel free not to answer them if you can't or don't want to, but um, don't worry, they're not. I'm more Parkinson than Paxman here. Um, <laughs> and but if there's if there's anything through my ignorance I haven't said that you think agri agri farmers really need to hear today, please feel free just to jump in and go for it. So I'd like to start off with one of the, a huge subject at the moment: food security. Um, yeah. Now, everybody's got an opinion on this. Uh, government don't tend to be listening to the farms very much. What, what's your take on this? What, what can farms do and be doing to help this? It's, it's my biggest fear. I mean, I think we're, as a nation, we are a week away from civil insurrection. We've got a just-in-time culture uh, where the supermarkets run everything down to the bare minimum. They carry about three days' worth of stocks. And then the supermarket shelves are empty and it only takes a slight little blip in the supply chain for that to happen. You know, it can be a strike. It can be a climatic condition. It can be a big vessel going down in the sea, a port being shut or something like that. And in no time at all, we have got bare, bare shelves on the supermarkets. Now, you can cope with that for three days. I think most houses probably carry enough food to survive a week at the most and then they have to go out looking for it and this is not looking at the energy sources and petrol as well which have to go with it and if they can't get food within a week i think you know we're looking at potential riots on the street it's that grave a situation so when i was born in 1960 we were 78 self-sufficient in food and there was that wartime mentality actually still striving was to become 100 percent um, now i fear we're about to go below 50 percent with Margaret Beckett, when she was DEFRA secretary, said, well, if imported food's cheaper, let's import it. And I find that absolutely horrific that the politicians don't listen to that. We should be setting ourselves targets to increase our self-sufficiency. Coupled with that, we've become a very bad exporting nation as well. I don't think we really export properly. And it's only when I did my Nuffield scholarship, went around the world and saw how much better countries like Australia and Canada were at exporting produce. Uh, than we were with better export facilities and actually marketed and graded their stuff on the dock side. And short-termism is probably killing this country in that respect, and I find that really, really scary. Um, and so if that's the problem, if that's the problem, yeah. what can we be doing about it? Well, 
it's interesting the countries where cooperation is strong and i look at you know i look at the sort of grain belt in canada manitoba saskatchewan those type of countries and go to western australia you know they've all got strong cooperatives and strong cooperatives where there's no consensus of population or little 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 market on their end doorstep works supremely well but as you get nearer the conurbations farmers always tend to undermine their own marketing status by selling direct and that undermines the whole cooperative principle right. and virtually every nuffield scholar i talk to they all come back convinced cooperation is the way forward but when it goes into practice farmers always try and undercut it and that's what destroys it but if we were strong together marketing wise we could do a lot better job i've got no doubt about that and the investment and the french are much better than we are you know i went around uh, uh, some years ago i went around um uh, a sugar beet factory in, uh, in 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 the Champagne region in France, absolutely brilliant. And they built a bioethanol plant next door to it. And I said to them, "How did you finance it?" Oh, instead of doing the seed quota, we just took the money and built a bioethanol plant. Well, years later, that will have paid itself hand over fist, and the farmers will have got all their money back they lost during that year by not selling their, their seed quota at eighteen quid a ton or whatever it was, and uh, and will have got a full reinvestment on that. So that is long term far-sighted investment isn't it and we're we as a nation of that aren't very good at doing it how can we be better <laughs> well I, this is i mean this, this is where i've probably changed politically over the years is i i, I think you know we're, we're we're run by conglomerates who always go for the short-term profit and without the investment in dockside facilities export marketing campaigns we're doomed and uh, and um and you don't get that from from multinational companies i'm afraid you know they they, they take the short-term profit and uh, and that 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 is killing us as a nation and and in a in a strange sort of way though it's a, totally against my political principles you almost need some sort of government intervention to inspire that <laughs> okay um, and and our our relationships and collaboration between government and the industry improving or just getting worse well, they they're not good at the moment. I the the the, the trouble is, uh, is is there's a there is a urban rural divide, isn't there, in the country, and 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 you never get anybody in the post long enough to build up a good rapport. I mean, we've gone through we went through quite a good period. Michael Gove, George Eustace, Victoria Prentice, people of that ilk, and they understood the industry, and I fear now they've gone. You've got you. You're back to square one again, and it's it's very difficult. And we've got Mark Spencer there, who's a great guy, a farmer. He understands it. But actually, how much power has he got in actually pushing pushing proposals and promoting agriculture forward? I fear not much, especially around the cabinet table. So aside from food security, what would and and, and again, I'm being simplistic, but what what would you say is the biggest opportunity for British farming right now, and what's the biggest challenge? Well, the biggest opportunity we've got is to totally reform the way we do it. But uh, I, I'm totally against the environmental aspect, which we're going down at the moment, because mm. it's tilted too far the other way. I mean, people won't give a damn where how good the environment is if they haven't got food on the table. And the vegetarians and vegans will be the first to push you out the queue, you know, if they're short of food and all their principles will go out the window. But what I learned from my time in farm assurance was that it is very possible to increase production while improving biodiversity and bird counts 
and combine it with energy management plans, muck management plans, and that type of thing. And I delivered over 80 schemes, you know, if you count all the bolt-on retail schemes I did in 22 years in farm assurance. Uh, and there was one scheme which really stood out to me, which was Bill Jordan, you know, Jordan's, uh, from Jordan Cereal Bars, who ultimately sold out to ABS. But they had a wonderful scheme called Conservation Grade. And what you did was there, you took ninety, you, you took 10% of your land out of production and put it into pollen and nectar mixtures, uh, beetle banks, planted trees, uh, wildflower mixes, that type of thing. But the game was on with these commercial farmers who took that up to still get the same yields from the 90% of ground which was left. And most of them did that quite comfortably. And they're absolutely right. fanatical. You, you, you could go into their offices and I used to go and audit a lot of these myself because they were such fascinating characters. They were influenced by the fact that Bill John was playing on a two or three pound a ton premium for their crops as well, which which went down well. Uh, but they they, they you know, they'd have charts on their walls to show how their lapwing counts and skylarks were going up. They'd have all the management energy management plans in in, in place, uh, and they were really proud to increase yields while increasing their biodiversity on the farm. And to me, if that's that's the sort of uh, scheme we should be going going along, and then. You can add that in there, public access is becoming more important. The farmers that maintain their footpaths, and I, I, I had a spell of living in Northamptonshire, uh, where one the local farmer there, he opens up all his headlands to, to members of the public. And he wasn't in the countryside stewardship or anything like that. But the goodwill he got from the from the, from the, the people around the, in the villages around, who walked around those 15-metre strips around the, around, the, around the farm during lockdown, etc., was absolutely phenomenal. And that helps cure that divide and he's also a very good farmer as well so you can again you can do too and i think perhaps by going down the environmental route we're perhaps gone too far the other way now we we talked about this in previous um in previous sessions where farmers really could benefit from doing more outreach and forming better links with not just their immediate local community that already probably know them a little bit but but actually learning how to present themselves, going to schools, going to colleges, actually inform and educate people in a, in a, in a, in a cool way about the industry and, and therefore also attract young people, which was going to be my next question to you. How can we, how can we attract more young people into the industry? Well, that's another conundrum. It's, I mean, some of the most rewarding work I've done as an individual is certainly going around schools, going to, le to lecturing at colleges and that type of thing. And you realise you know, how much support agriculture's got. And we do need to open the doors. And there's some fantastic programmes, you know, with Leaf Open Farm Sunday, Face, those type of things, which really help encourage children, bring them onto, on, onto farms and they learn all about the industry. And it's so important. The other thing I've learned as well, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I've been on most of the best farms in the country, you know, by hook or by crook, you know, in my assurance days or through Nuffield Worshipful Company of Farmers or whatever. And and I regularly drive around on my, my list of top 10 farmers. And usually seven or eight of those top 10 farmers are first generation farmers. And there's something to be really? learned from that. Yeah, you, you see what some farmers accomplish in 20 years. It's absolutely incredible. Start off from scratch. When I was at Harper Adams, there were lads there who could hardly afford to buy a round. They still did. But, you know, they, they'd go. <laughs> and, and now they are worth more than some of the estate owners who were there whose businesses have actually gone backwards and, and you, you don't hear of. So it's still possible if you've got an entrepreneurial flair and a drive to make a living. Uh, but 
there's something about first generation farmers who have a better attitude to risk and are more risk adverse and see things differently and probably aren't institutionalized, uh, which makes them view farming differently. And um, I've got some fantastic friends, particularly in Nuffield, who actually got they've got massive businesses now and they've all built it up themselves by seeing things differently and 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 viewing the uh, and, and it comes down to marketing and investment that they're, they're probably they're probably prepared to punt a bit more but in a very calculated way now that that has really both shocked me pleasantly but also yeah. um it it's it, it, it inspired me a little bit because I'm, I'm really shocked how many first generation farms are doing so well so but i shouldn't be because we've got the technology the resource available so why why are the big estate farms and the third fourth fifth generation farms why are they struggling are they are they burying their heads in the sand i i think it's a reluctance to change i think those yeah. oh my father right. did it my father did it that way i'm going to go on doing it the same and when somebody comes in from scratch and they've got big borrowing requirements, they have to make it pay and they have to look at it differently. They also have to diversify as well. And the best farming businesses are well diversified. You know, they just don't have all their eggs in one basket. And they, they, and they, and they also horizontally integrate and vertically integrate as well, which is quite interesting. And it's probably the vertical integration, which is the key to excess and perhaps having a retail operation, having your own transport fleet, your own storage, your own warehousing, your own grading, your own marketing platform. Uh, and social media is the other thing as well. You know, the, all the best farms now have got their own major social media operations, which is so important to progressing. And you've just got to look at, you know, you've got to look what Ollie Harris and Andrew Ward achieved with their own social medias and uh, following and Farmer Tom and those type of people, how they, PX Farms, how they get all their information out there. And they have their own army of disciples because of it. It's It's fascinating to see how many younger farmers are embracing diversity and you know it's not uncommon in in my research for these for these podcasts to to come across farmers who, who aren't just farming they've got three four or even five other different little micro projects on the farm bringing in an income keeping the farm sustainable and in business as well as doing their passion for be it agro dairy or whatever farming and and again, the the wonderful diversity of uh, vertical farming and um, mushroom farming, and I, I even came across one farm who who are making edible ants. Now, I, <laughs> edible ants, get that? Uh, but yeah. <laughs> and crickets is the other one as well. Crickets, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, incredible. Yeah, best dog training treats ever. They are, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, I want to dig a little bit into your expertise around management because farm farm management is something you've already mentioned. It's it's critical to the success of a farm. And if you had a if you had a magic wand, what what would be the one thing you would advise farmers who perhaps aren't as organised as they should be uh, to do in regards to farm management? Well, I'm I'm old school, so I, I mean, work hard, play hard. I think the two go together. And uh, if you can get a good team spirit, and I think that's why a number of businesses are struggling in the last couple of years post lockdown because there's been a sea change in, in in attitude really, and it's and 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 there is a new generation now which aren't prepared to work the hours 
that I've worked. I mean, my children have always looked at me and said, Dad, you're mad, you know, the amount of hours you've worked in your, t- in your time. And they're probably right, but I've, I've always seen work has always been my therapy. Uh, and I think now there's a real challenge now to try and achieve the same productivity without, uh, with, 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 uh, without employing more staff. And that is a major issue. And then you look at the wage inflation we've had in the last few years as well, which yeah. has been incredible. And and to try and do those together, I think a lot of businesses have been faced with increasing their staff just to produce what they were doing in 2019, which is a bit scary. Agriculture, on the other hand, I think has been totally um, in a bubble, really. And it's during lockdown, it just carried on seamlessly, unaffected by it. You know, it's a special industry and all that. And 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 it hasn't gone on to it. But it's certainly supply trade and the ancillary side of it has has been affected by it and probably not affected well by it. And that has presented major leadership uh, problems and and uh, and productivity problems, which have got to be overcome. And uh, and ultimately, probably anything will ultimately come. It sadly will probably be a recession where people actually become less discerning and prepared to work longer hours again. But when that will be or how it will happen, I don't know. And and a guy in Australia has got into big problems for saying that. But that is at the back of my mind. And 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 people will change. Bill, I'd I'd, I'd like to keep you for a week. Actually, it's fascinating. <laughs> but we we've run out of time. Um, I can only say. Thank you so, so much. If people want to get hold of you, is it is LinkedIn the best way? or LinkedIn, or on, I'm on Twitter, Bill Young NSCH as well. You can send me direct messages. Uh, yeah, and I love talking to people. It's only by getting out and getting a balance of, the, of society, you realise you know what's going on. And um, and if ever I feel a bit down or a bit stale, the best therapy is to get out and talk to people, isn't it? Happiness to me is walking to a room full of people, knowing I know half of them and should know the other half. So Because <laughs> you always learn something. <laughs> good, good approach. <laughs> Love yeah. that. Bill, thank you very much for your time. Bless you. And we'll see you all soon on another Just for Farmers. Thanks a lot, David. It's been an absolute pleasure.